Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. Well, we have an exciting episode for you today. Well, at least I think it's exciting, and hopefully I think most of the episodes are exciting. But that being said, today we're going to talk about Genesis 4-7 and its translation. So you say, how could that be exciting? Well, one of the reasons it is so debated, and I say debated, but in reality important in how we think through it, is because a lot of people will use Genesis 4-7 and its contrast with Genesis 3.16 to talk about what the desire of the woman is. So in Genesis 3.16, the ESV says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. Uh, Literally, it shall be toward or to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, a lot of people take that verse to mean that the woman has a desire to usurp the authority, the leadership of her husband. And one of the big supports for that is how to understand Genesis 4-7. Because Genesis 4-7 takes that same Hebrew phrase or a similar Hebrew phrase in at the end of Genesis 4-7 when it says sin is crouching at the door. Genesis 4-7 reads, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So there the ESV takes a very similar approach in translating it. And so a lot of people say, well, hey, obviously this desire in Genesis 4-7 is sin uh, trying to control the other person, trying to control Cain in this context. And so in Genesis 3-16, that would make sense that the wife is trying to control her husband in a way that is not a part of God's design for the marriage relationship. Now that's a possible interpretation, but having studied Genesis 4-7, I want to bring out a couple details that may make us think differently about how this, this passage ought to be understood. And part of the motivation for this actually comes from reading a passage, or reading a passage, reading an article by Michael Morales, who is a professor of Old Testament at Reformation Bible College in Florida. And he put out an article in 2012 in the in Bible Translator, the journal Bible Translator. And the title of the article is Crouching Demon, Hidden Lamb. So it's a, it's a great article. I encourage you to, to look it up, uh, have a read. His point in the article is that this translation in Genesis 4-7 may be suspect. And what he actually talks about, which is interesting, is he traces the history of the translation. So what he notes, and he also references another article, which was written in 2010 by John DeJong, who wrote an article entitled, A Sin Offering Crouching at the Door, Translation Lessons from an Exegetical Fossil in the Judson Bible. So what they observe is that Adoniram Judson... Adam Clark, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, who all translated, who all had English translations of the Bible. And Adoniram Judson dates to the late 1700s, early 1800s. Clark uh, dates to about the same time. And Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown date to the late 1800s. They all had English translations or translations. And what they... What they did was they translated 
Genesis 4, 7 as a reference to sin offering, not sin. You say, is that even possible? Well, yeah, it is possible. The word for sin, chatat in Hebrew, is both a reference to sin or sin offering, depending on the context. Now, usually it's not even debated. It's very clear what it's a reference to. But both translations are valid. Also in 1862, Young's literal translation also translated chatat in Genesis 4-7 as a sin offering. So if I were to import that translation in Genesis 4-7, normally we have, if you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. But how these gentlemen would understand it, if you do not do well, a sin offering is lying at the door. You say, okay, that obviously changes the whole meaning of this passage. But I think that there's some arguments to be made about that. And so the questions we need to ask are obviously, what's the evidence? How, how are we to decide this? And then also it's, it's, I think, intriguing to ask, why were there a lot of English translations that translated it sin offering early, but now there's almost unanimous support for the translation of sin in Genesis 4-7. And I think that there is a satisfying answer to that. So let's let's think through, through the passage a little bit together and what's going on. So one of the grammatical complexities in Genesis 4-7 is the fact that the word for sin or sin offering, chatat in Hebrew, is a feminine word. And in English, we don't really have gender associations with words. And, but in a lot of languages like Spanish, Hebrew, Greek, you have grammatical gender inherent in a word. And if there's going to be a modifier of that word, it needs to agree in gender and number. So when we have the phrase, sin is crouching at the door, the word for crouching is a participle in Hebrew, and the rules of grammar, how grammar normally functions, is that that participle must agree with the noun in gender. However, what you have in Hebrew is, although you have a feminine noun, chatat, you have a masculine participle, rovetz. And so that has caused some discussion. And, and a lot of people kind of gloss over that and say, oh, it's an irregularity. That's not really a big issue. But in reality, there should be a reason. I mean, this isn't some secret or this isn't just some normal happenstance. It's very rare for for there to be disagreement on this level between a masculine and a feminine uh, word uh, picture or a combination. And so in reality, what we want to look at is we want to ask is there a under is there a way we can understand why there's a masculine definer of this word and actually one of the interesting proposals that Morales puts forward is that if you examine the use of chatat as sin offering you actually see that masculine pronouns are used on occasion when sin offering is referring to a male sacrifice. And if you want uh, examples of that, you can look at Exodus 29.14 and Leviticus 4.21 to name two. And what those passages show are that there, when, when there's a reference made to sin offering, which is a feminine word there in a cultic context, in a sacrificial context, 
you have a reference also with a masculine pronoun or a masculine referent. And that shouldn't happen grammatically, except for the fact that it's understood that the sin offering, although it's feminine, is actually making a reference to the male sin offering. For example, male goats, uh, bulls, etc. Those are often used as sin offerings. And so it would be normal and even appropriate to have a masculine pronoun referencing that sin offering because it would be male a lot of times. And so that is actually a demonstrable fact from sacrificial literature. So inherently, if we're asking why there is this masculine referent to a feminine noun, I think the evidence does already start to lean a little bit toward a sin offering, uh, sin offering context. Now, a lot of people will say that this has to be a reference to sin because of the idea of crouching. And crouching is a negative concept, and you don't have a sin offering crouching ready to pounce upon you. Now, that may sound like a good argument, but it really is is not an argument, because the Hebrew word for crouching is ravatz, which is just the word for lying down or resting. In fact, uh, see if you uh, see if you recall this passage in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down beside green pastures. But the word for lying down there is ravatz. It's the same word, and it's clearly not a negative context, but rather a positive context. Or more accurately, it's it's a neutral word, which the context will determine whether or not it's a good lying down or a bad lying down. And very clearly in Psalm 23, it's good. It's a resting. It's a, it's a positive thing. And so inherently, you can't just argue that the word means crouching. And so it's a negative context. And therefore, chatat, the word must mean sin. That's a circular argument, and it doesn't doesn't hold water. And so you have to look at the broader context. Now, an additional argument for sin offering being made would be the word, the concept of door being there, sin, the sin offering lying at the door. Well, why in the world would be there, would there be a reference to door? Well, if you just run a search for this word for door, which is petach in the Hebrew, what you actually see is that this is the location of sacrifice. The location of sacrifice in Levitical literature. For example, uh, in Leviticus 3.2, he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So the offerings were to be, were to be slaughtered at the entrance. That's that same word, petach, at the door. And so what you see there is it's supposed to be done at the entrance. Leviticus 4.7 says something similar. Leviticus 1.5, something similar. Uh, all of this this major worship uh, and the and the sacrificing of the animals would take place often at the door of the tabernacle and so this reference to the door uh what is what does it mean well and this is something that morales points out and i can't remember if he points it out in his article or if he points it out in his book on leviticus he has a he has a good biblical theology on on the importance of leviticus what he points out is that when man is kicked out of the Garden of Eden, uh, that's obviously a devastating blow to their to their 
I mean, to their well-being. I mean, that's obviously terrible. They they are at the centerpiece of creation at that point. They have communion with God and God kicks them out of the garden. And the garden is the focal point of communion with man at that time. Well, if you get kicked out of the best place on earth, the odds are you're not going to go very far. You're going to stay close. And, and hypothetically, and I agree with this ass- assessment by Morales, is that it's I think clear that Adam and Eve and, and Cain and Abel, they're not far from where they got kicked out of the garden, but they would be r- close. And the assumption would be that the offerings that Cain and Abel offer would be at that door or the conjunction where the garden and their exile takes place. So they would, when Cain and, and Abel offer their offerings to the Lord, they're doing it at the door or at the place where they would be able to enter the garden of Eden. And so that would make most sense because that would be the closest place to God that they could get at that point. And that would be where their offerings are offered up. So I think that this reference to door would be that, to the entrance where they've been kicked out, where, where the, uh, the entrance is guarded back into, back into the Garden of Eden. I think that that is a very logical, very reasonable context given what has happened in Genesis 3 and the sacrificial context of Genesis 4. Now, that being said, the I think the evidence begins to stack up for understanding this to be a sin offering. So in context, what I would say the translation should be is something with this effect. If you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do well, you have a sin offering to offer at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Now, this last phrase, its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. This is where I'm still thinking through some things, but I want to throw the two main options out there for you as I see it. So again, it's a masculine pronoun here with its desire. So either it's a reference to the sin offering's desire, or what Morales says is that it's it's Abel's desire. So in other words, uh it would it would say your brother's desire is for you it's your brother wants you to do well and in context that would make sense your brother wants you to do well his desire is for you and then the the rest of the phrase would be and you must take care of him you must rule over him the concept of rule the word for rule here is not a negative term mashal it's it's again one of those neutral terms which can be a very positive uh meaning and so that would be the understanding if you take that as a reference to abel Abel's desire is for you and you must take care of him. You must, you must make sure the situation is resolved, in other words. But I lean a little more towards seeing the referent as a referent to the sin offering because that would be the easiest referent. That's the closest antecedent. That's just saying that, that the, whenever you have a pronoun, that's the, what would make most sense for that. So how would a sin offering have a desire for Cain? I think idiomatically what, what it's talking about is the, the sin offering exists and it desires, if you, if you can, if you can, uh, allow the sin offering, the, the goat or whatever it is to have feelings, it wants you to be reconciled with God and you must, you must take charge of it and implement that. That's the idea. You must rule over it. In other words, you must take care of it. You must master that. You must, you must be in charge of effectuating that sacrificial process. So those are the two main options. Either it's talking about Cain and Abel and their relationship, or it's talking about Cain and his relationship to the sin offering. I think that those are the the most natural ways of taking 
this passage. Now, that being said, obviously, it's not heresy to view this as sin. That is what the majority, in fact, almost exclusively, besides some of the older English translations, do you see it a reference to sin offering. So sin is the is the go-to translation for all these major, major translations. But one of the things that I think Morales helpfully points out is maybe answering why you have this this translation of sin. And I think there are two reasons that we could boil it down to. Why did this translation really arise and stick to all the major translations? Well, first of all, I think you have the influence of the King James Version because the King James Version translates it as sin. And so inherently, because of the popularity, because of the authorized nature of that translation, that is the go-to for for standard English Bibles, that would be how most people use that as a as a testing ground or so, of sorts. And so it's hard to shake that influence of the KJV a lot of times. In, in a lot of passages, you'll even have uh, modern translations use the KJV wording in certain passages like the Lord's Prayer, Psalm 23, because of their pop- popularity. So it's really hard to shake the influence of the KJV. But in addition, and I think this is a stronger reason that Morales really, really pounds on, is that at the end of the 18th century, you really have the documentary hypothesis, uh, liberal scholarship purporting the fact uh, of a theory known as JEPD, which really emphasizes the fact that the Old Testament can be compartmentalized and broken up into different sources and that you have priestly sources, sacrificial sources, cultic sources, and those belong in the Levitical literature and they're, they're late dated and, and anything early would, would belong in a non-cultic context. And so you have a lot of scholars and translators now who are trained either directly or even indirectly influenced by the scholarship that has really been popular popularized over the last 200 years, which says that anything early in scripture, anything early on the timeline can't have a cultic context or can't have a fully functioning religious sacrificial system because man evolves over time. And even though especially conservatives would never use that language, that's essentially the mindset that a lot of top-notch scholarship teaches is that you have this this development from the simple to the complex. So early on, Cain and Abel, if that's if that's very early in history, you don't have a complex religious sacrificial structure. And so you would have to wait later on in uh, post Mount Sinai to get that kind of religious structure. But like I would say, if we just look at the structure and the context, I think that there is a very highly functioning sacrificial structure going on in Genesis 4. I mean, even if you look at uh, Job 1, it's very clear that Job has a very clear idea of a sacrificial system that he ought to follow in order to please the Lord. So I think that we do ourselves a disservice by automatically assuming that it has to be a reference to sin and it can't be a reference to sin offering. I think when we examine the evidence, it seems at least in my mind, to be most conducive to a reference to a sin offering, to the potential of reconciling Cain with God and with his brother. And so that's where I land, but you are welcome to disagree with me. 
So anyway, I hope that this episode has been helpful, maybe uh, tweaked the mind a little bit, challenged you in some ways. Love to hear from you. Uh, you can always email me at peter at petergaming.com with any questions or comments. I would love to hear from you. If you want to check out more about me or the seminary, you can visit my personal website, petergaming.com, or the seminary's website, shepherds.edu. Until next time, we'll see you later.